Well, church family, it is a joy for me to stand in front of you this morning. Um, the moment that Brandon asked me to preach, uh, I was just overwhelmed with excitement. Um, I love this church. I love you guys. And I love opening God's word. So we're going to do that today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to stay in Pastor Brandon's series on God loves you. And I want to take a little bit of a different approach in 2 Corinthians 5. And I want to speak from this title today. A love that fuels the mission. A love that fuels the mission. Here's my purpose. Here's my goal today. It's very simple. I want to take us to the foot of the cross. And I want us to gaze upon Jesus and be so overwhelmed with his love that when we walk out of this building, the only thing we can do is scream his praises. That's my goal. I want you to feel Jesus' love for you today more than you ever have. We are going to exalt Christ and gaze upon the cross and all of its beauty. And so as we do that, I want to ask this question. What is love? And immediately some of you guys, you wanted to start singing the song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. (laughs) Or maybe you were here for the first sermon in this series And you know that God is love. The Apostle John tells us that in his first letter. Well, I want to read an article from Time Magazine that talks about the definition of love. Listen closely to this. It says, it is time to change the meaning of the word love. The word is mostly used according to the first definition given in the dictionary, which says that love is an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. After years speaking with couples before, during, and after marriage, and of talking to parents and children struggling with their relationships, I am convinced of the partiality of the definition. Love should be seen not as a feeling, but as an enacted emotion. To love is to feel and act lovingly. Too many women have told me, with bruises visible on their faces, that the husbands who struck them loved them. Since they see love as a feeling, the word hides the truth, which is that you do not love someone whom you repeatedly beat and abuse. You may have very strong feelings about them. You may even believe you cannot live without them, but you do not love them. You see, it doesn't take a Christian or someone to read the Bible to know that love is an action. Love is not merely an emotion, but is an action. You see, we feel this as we read scripture, right? Think about reading the story of creation, where God spoke and everything came into existence. And we feel such love that God would create humanity in his own image. Why do we feel such great love? Because God acted. What about after the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned and were disobedient, And God in his grace sacrifices his creation to animals to create clothes for Adam and Eve. Why do we feel such love for that? Because God acted. 
Once again, God delivers Israel from Egypt and all of their oppression. And we feel such love because we know our God cares for the brokenhearted and the hurting. Once again, God acted. You see, today, I want to take us to the greatest display of love ever. The greatest action in all of history. The action that all of history is pointing to. That action being Jesus hanging on a cross. I want us to gaze at the blood-stained tree that was created to glorify Christ. Oh, and boy, did it glorify him. I want to take us there and have us stay there. And let that love so grip our hearts that we will make disciples of the nations. Or to put it as Paul will put it in our passage today, that we will be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. So now that you know where we're going, let's dive in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. The word of the Lord says this. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Amen? Amen. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pray with me. Father God, we beg of you to give us eyes to see the love of Jesus on the cross. God, don't hold back today. Overwhelm us this morning with your love. And God, use it to drive us to the mission so that one day the nations will sing of your praises around the throne. In Christ's name, amen. As we jump into this text, I want to give you a little bit of context of 2 Corinthians. Now, this is Paul's second letter that we have recorded in Scripture, but it's actually one of four letters that Paul will write to this Corinthian church. Okay, and so this is actually the third letter. He sent one that we have lost in history, and then we have 1 Corinthians, and then this one comes. And so the context behind this letter is that the Corinthians were, were following these false leaders, and these false leaders were um, telling, the, telling the Corinthian church that Paul was not a true apostle. They were questioning his leadership. 
And Paul writes this letter after hearing that the majority of the church has turned from these false teachers and is trusting in the gospel again. And so this letter is a is celebration. But understanding the, the context of what's going on helps us understand why Paul would use the language of reconciliation. You see, Paul had been wronged by this church. He had invested himself over and over and over again. And they had turned away from him. But, like Paul always does, he comes back to the gospel. Because he knows that the gospel can unite. And the gospel brings reconciliation. And so with that in mind, let's, let's jump into our text. And so he starts out in verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ. Now, this love of Christ, the construction of this in the Greek, it, it really could give us a couple meanings. Now, Paul could be referring to Jesus' love for Paul. That's a, a possible interpretation. It could also be talking about Paul's love for Jesus. But I think maybe the best interpretation of this is both. You see, Paul, like no one else, understood Jesus' love. He had went from persecuting and murdering Christians to being the greatest church planner, missionary, and theologian in the history of the church. And all while doing it, saying, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul understood Christ's love, and in that, he tries to emulate Christ's love to these Corinthians. You see, church family, if, if we want to love people well, if we want to love our city well, if we want to love well in this church, here's the greatest thing you could do. Share Jesus with that person. Because I'm going to tell you what, your love is going to disappoint them. People in my life, they let me down, they disappoint me, even the people closest to me. But I'm going to tell you what, Jesus Christ has not let me down yet. His love is steady and sure, it's eternal, and it doesn't waver. And Paul comes to these Corinthians and he says, I want to love you like this. I want to love you like Jesus has loved me. And so for the love of Christ, and he says, look, it controls me. I love other translations say it compels us or it constrains us, or even this, this translation, it overmasters us. Here's the idea the love of Christ shapes and molds us into our purpose. Paul says, when I experienced Jesus' love, I had no other choice but to tell people about it. Here's a, here's a picture for your mind to get this idea. I, I want you to think of wet concrete, and I know that's a weird illustration. Wet concrete. When you first mix it up and it's liquidy, and it, you know if you got it in a wheelbarrow, it'll slosh around everywhere, and if you just pour it out, with no structure, no shape, no form. It just goes wherever it wants. You see, but when you work with concrete, you always have a form with wood that will keep that concrete where you want it. And it gives it structure, it gives it shape, it gives it purpose. You see, Jesus Christ's love for us is the form that we need for our lives. Otherwise, we are wet concrete spilled on the ground with no purpose. The love of Christ controls us. Listen to Psalm 1611. It says this beautifully. You make known to me the path of your life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, Paul understood that Jesus is the only one who will ever give you purpose and joy. And church family, if you don't know that today, oh, come run into him. 
He'll change your life. You see, Paul moves on and he says, because this love of Christ controls it, it's because of this conclusion that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, this, uh, this phrase, one has died for all, it's kind of confusing, but he's referring to Jesus. He's saying Jesus has died for all. But the preposition used here, the, this for, can easily be also translated this way. Hear this verse this way. One has died instead of all. Or, even better, one has died on behalf of all. You see, this phrase, Paul, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is that Jesus' death was a substitutionary atonement. Meaning that Jesus died in your place. Because as sinners, we have, we have offended a holy God. And he is just, and he is loving, but he cannot let sin go unatoned for. And so Jesus' death then is for all people. It's for all humanity. All of the nations, all of the languages, all tribes. And because of that, Paul can say, therefore all have died. What he means by that is that all of humanity, the death that they deserve was wrapped up in Jesus' death on the cross because he was perfect. Paul is reminding us of what he wrote in Romans chapter 3 when he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Church family, listen to me this morning. As we take a seat at the foot of the cross and we remember the perfect Son of God, the spotless Lamb who left his glory and his throne in heaven to come to this earth for sinners like us and wrapped himself in human flesh and was born in a manger, a king born in a manger among animals to live a life where he would be rejected by his own family, rejected by his own followers. He would be spat on. He would be mocked and have his beard ripped out. As he climbed on a tree that he created naked to die for you. One has died, therefore all has died. Church family, what love, what grace, what mercy. I beg of you, gaze upward and see love hanging on a tree. See Jesus and be changed. You see, Jesus' love informs the mission because we see why Jesus had to die. But additionally, we see Jesus' love informs the mission because it demands that we live differently. Look at verse 15. Paul says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. You see, he makes this qualification that although Jesus has died for this whole world, his death was sufficient for all. Only those who repent and believe in Jesus will be saved. 
Those who live. It's a reference back to John chapter three when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, if you wanna see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. He's referring back to John 11 when Jesus is talking to Martha after her brother Lazarus is dead. And he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Those who live, those in Christ. Church family, if one person has done this for us, does it not make sense to live our entire life for him? What other response do we have but to plead with the Apostle Paul, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ controls me. Have you ever noticed that in this world, whenever remarkable love is displayed, it's always reciprocated back? Here's what I mean by this. Think about a young boy and his daddy. What is it about a young son who loves his daddy so much? That daddy shows him remarkable love. And in response, that young boy views his dad as Superman. Remarkable love is reciprocated. Think about a mother's love. There's nothing like a a hug from your mother. There's nothing like a home-cooked meal from your mama. Remarkable love is reciprocated. And so church family, if we look at the cross and we say no greater love than Jesus, our response is to be obedient and to live for him. And he says we do that by no longer living for ourselves, dying to ourselves. And this charge, this challenge that's difficult to grasp, that's difficult to carry out, Paul couples it with a great promise. Look what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, him who for their sake died and was raised. On whose behalf did Jesus die? For who did Jesus die? For our sake. Why? So that we could have relationship with God again. And I love this last, this last word that, that he was raised. You know, the, the original Greek word there, it actually means to, to wake someone up from sleep. And Paul has just used this word in a previous chapter to talk about Christians who have died and are waiting for the resurrection where Jesus will bring them back. And he uses this word because here's, as Christians, when you die, you're just sleeping. It is merely sleep. And you're dreaming, waiting for the day where your groom comes and gets you and he takes you up to heaven. And one day we'll see him face to face. Is there a greater vision of grace? I love this. Jesus' resurrection is everything to the gospel. I love how Peter says it in Acts 2.24 at Pentecost when he's preaching. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let me translate that for you. Here's how I like to say it. Death has to bow to my Jesus. Sin has no hold on my Jesus. And his resurrection empowers us. Paul is reminding these Corinthians what he wrote in chapter 15 of his first letter. 
He says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in fact Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's no reason for us to be here this morning. He says our faith will be futile. But verse 20, he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we long for that day where he will resurrect us all and we will live in eternity with him. Church family, in light of this truth, there is only one response, and that's to celebrate. I mean, flat out celebrate, have a party, and dance. Amen. You see, the resurrection enables worship. It enables hope. It enables love to fuel the mission. Let me give you one more one more little piece from this, this section. Verse 16. Paul says, Therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Now let me explain this even though phrase first, and I'll come back to the beginning. It'll make sense better that way. Paul says that even though we regarded Christ according to the flesh, Paul is going back in time to before his conversion. He's going back to when he was persecuting Christians and when he was murdering Christians, where he thought Jesus was a blasphemer. He said, I regarded Christ according to the flesh. I viewed Christ merely from worldly perspective. I was selfish. He says, don't regard others that way. Don't regard others in this world with a worldly standard, with worldly preconceived notions, but rather view them as Christ views them. Love them as Jesus has loved them. Church family, we have to recognize that the evil in this world is a result of sin, and we are fighting against a real enemy in this world. Paul will tell us in Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Your coworker, your neighbor, your mom, your dad, whoever it is, they're not the issue. They're not the problem. Church family, I'm begging you, as I have been on my knees begging God to do in my own heart, that I would view people simply as sinners in need of the gospel. Because only then will we love them like Jesus has loved them. Church, when we fail to do this, we plant seeds of discontentment and disunity. When we fail to love others like Jesus has loved, we plant seeds of discontentment. Church, if anyone was to be content in this world, it's us. Do I need to remind you of the cross? And church, if there was anybody in this world to be unified, is it not us? We've been given the gospel, a centralized mission to proclaim God. Furthermore, Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be just as united as Jesus and the Father are. What a prayer. Jesus and the Father, both God, the same essence, and he says that all Christians would be just like that. Unity and contentment is so crucial for our church. 
So church family, for the sake of the mission of reaching lost souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm asking you to lay down your selfish desires. I'm asking you to cease from slandering others. I'm asking you to cease from gossiping. Because church, the mission is too great and the time is too short for us to waste time arguing and bickering inside of these walls. This city needs to know that Green Street Baptist Church is a place of hope and of Jesus' love. This church has been in this city for way too long for us to lose sight of the mission now. So we saw in verses 14 through 16 that Jesus' love informs the mission. I want to show you in verses 17 through the first half of 18 that Jesus' love created the mission. Jesus' love created the mission. Verse 17, it's it's a popular verse, you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul, just like in verse 15, where he gave the qualifier for those who live, he gives another qualifier in verse 17, for if anyone is in Christ, the idea of being in Christ is being connected to him. It's being united to him. It's that he is the very life source for you. Here's the illustration that Jesus gave us to better understand this. In John 15, he says that he is the vine and the father is the vine dresser. And we are the branches. And unless we abide in Jesus, we lose all life. Hear me, church. If we are going to do anything about reaching this city, we have got to be abiding in Jesus. We need to be connected to our Savior. You see, to be in Christ is not just merely intellectual assent. It's not being able to just recite what the gospel is. No, to be in Christ is to accept the gospel with open hands and a surrendered heart and saying, God, whatever you say, the answer is yes. That's what it means to be in Christ. And look, if you're in Christ, what happens? What's what's the result? You're a new creation. Literally, you are a new substance. Not that you've been renewed or that you've changed or or that you're the same but just better. No, you're different altogether. You're a new creation. God has taken you from death to life. You know, Revelation 21 is probably my favorite passage in all of Scripture because it tells us of our future hope where God will make a new heaven and a new earth. And as I was studying this week on on this new creation, it hit me, why do we need a new heaven and a new earth? We're new creatures. Every single person in here who knows Christ, you know that this isn't your home. We're travelers passing through. We have a mission with us, but we're travelers because we were made for something greater and something better, and it's a new heaven and a new earth. As a new creation, you long for that day. And Paul goes on, he says that the old has passed away. 
Better translation of this would be the old has perished. It's ceased to exist. You ask, what is the old that Paul's referring to? Well, it's this. It's everything that is wrapped up in your sinful flesh. All of it. Gone. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 6.6. 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Listen closely. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Listen to me, church family. So often we walk around acting like we're new creatures, but we're still handcuffed to sin. You see, the picture that I think a lot of us are walking in right now is we're in Christ, and Christ has broken the shackles of sin off of us, and yet we've reached back down and we've picked him up and we're holding on to him. And we say, God, I can't stop sinning. And he says, son, daughter, I freed you. Just let go. To be a new creation, you have denied your sinful flesh. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, during temptation, you can say no. You can say no. And you can choose to walk in holiness. So I implore you today, choose holiness. Our world needs to see a church and a Christian who is walking the walk and talking the talk. Church family, why not us? This next phrase may be the most beautiful phrase in the whole passage. Paul says, all this is from God. All of salvation, the whole process, it's all from God. It's all his work. It was his initiative. It was his miracle. It's all from him. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What do we have to boast in other than our Jesus? If you think you have something to boast in, brother, sister, I hate to burst your bubble, but you don't. The only thing you can boast in is Jesus. Paul goes on to say that through this, Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, there was a debt that we owed to God because of our sin. A payment was due, and we were unable to pay it. We're broke. We're poor. A debt was owed, but Jesus, but Jesus paid it all. You see, this word reconcile, it's worth our time to to stop for a second and really consider the concept here. You see, reconcile means to exchange something. It's an exchange that happens, and the result is that one person receives favor. The reconciliation that occurred when Christ died on the cross was that we would receive his righteousness, and he would take the punishment for sin for us. 
and the favor that we receive is now being called sons and daughters of the King of Kings. Reconciliation, the great exchange on our behalf. But don't forget, verse 18, this is all from God. It's all him. You see, one scholar, uh, he illustrated this process of justification that occurs in reconciliation well. He says this. He says, justification is a judicial term used in the law courts. A judge may acquit an accused person without ever entering into any personal relationship with him or her. He just announces the verdict, not guilty. And the accused hardly would expect to be invited over for dinner by that same judge and probably hopes that he would never have to see him again. But in Christ, he's the judge, he takes the punishment, and he invites us to sit at the table with him. Amen. We have gone from enemies to friends of God. We've gone from blind to being able to see. From lepers that were outcast from his presence to now we're accepted. From lame men and women who can't walk to now we can dance and sing of Jesus. Reconciliation. What a beautiful word. Truly, Jesus' love is greater than anything else in this world. And his love has created the mission. What I want you to see, lastly, verses 18 through 21, is that Jesus' love sustains the mission. Jesus' love sustains the mission. In other words, as we press deeper into Jesus' love, the mission only drives forward. Look at what Paul says at the end of 18. He says that Jesus has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's entrusted it to us, the very ones he saved. You see, every time reconciliation is used in scripture, when God is the subject, the verb carries an active voice. But when humanity is the subject, it carries a passive voice. Now, for all of those in the congregation who you don't like grammar, you don't, can't stand it, that's me. I had to read this, what this meant. Let me translate that for you. Humanity is always the recipient of reconciliation. And God is on, the only one who can give reconciliation. So when Paul tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, here's what he's saying. Go reconcile others on behalf of God in his power. Go reconcile others on behalf of God in his power because you can't do it by yourself. What a great truth. What love that God would give us the spirit to empower us to do so. Be grateful for the Holy Spirit that you have a helper and that it's better that you have him than Jesus right beside you. We've been invited to participate in the mission of God. And not only have we been invited, we've been commanded to carry it out. We have become men and women concerned with the business of exchange. 
the business of the great exchange. I love how one scholar put it. He said, like Christ, a minister of reconciliation plunges into the midst of human tumult to bring harmony out of chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. This is our charge. Paul continues on in verse 19. He says, that is, now this phrase, he's really saying, listen, church, you already know this. Corinthians, you've already heard this. You should know this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And God did not count our trespasses against us. He didn't count our sins against us. Truly, this verse, it it, it reeks of Isaiah 53. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan from the start. You see, the beauty in this phrase is that the verb reconcile, the tense that is used, it's an incomplete action. Now, it's not an incomplete action because Jesus' death was not sufficient. That's not why it was incomplete. It's incomplete because Jesus' death on the cross begs for a response. And furthermore, it begs for someone to proclaim the truth so that someone can respond. It's incomplete because we have a mission to do in this church, in this world. This is why Paul would write in Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The verb is incomplete because it is begging us to go be preachers to this lost and dying world. How are we to respond to such truths, church family? Our sins have been taken care of. I love Psalm 103.12. It says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Church, with this kind of news, how can we be silent? With this kind of love, how can we not scream of Jesus? And Paul continues on in verse 20, and he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Man, cling to that. You are an ambassador for Christ. Listen, ancient ambassadors had a couple roles, and here's some just interesting facts about them. First, ambassadors were never to be put in prison. They were always protected. They could do no wrong. Secondly, their job was to make friendly relations by establishing an alliance or relationship with a foreign enemy. Thirdly, ambassadors outside of Rome would come to Rome in order to receive imperial favor. And then lastly, ambassadors 
proclaim and appeal on behalf of the one that has sent them. Here's how we are ambassadors for Christ. As ambassadors for Christ, we are protected from the enemy. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, this is a beautiful verse to memorize. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Christian, as you go out into this world, you're protected from the enemy. Secondly, as ambassadors for Christ, we are called to establish relations with those under the authority of the foreign enemy. We're called to embrace sinners. Church family, can I, can I just encourage you to be a person in your neighborhood that's hospitable? Invite sinners into your home and cook them a meal. Seek to be the kindest person on your street. Do selfless acts for no other reason than because Jesus did it for you. Three, as ambassadors for Christ, we call people to find God's favor in Jesus. This great exchange where we receive God's favor on our life, it's our job as ambassadors to tell others of this. Lastly, as ambassadors for Christ, we proclaim and appeal to others to accept the gospel. And we do so on behalf of God. I love 2 Timothy 4 too. Paul is encouraging Timothy and he says, preach the word. And the idea behind this preach verb is that a public herald during this time would go into another city and he would stand in the streets where everyone could hear him and he would cry aloud the message of the king. This is what Paul's encouraging Timothy to do. This is what he's asking us to do. To go into the public and to cry aloud of the goodness of Jesus. Proclaim his love. Preach the word. And we can do this because we have confidence knowing that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. As he tells us in the Great Commission. Maybe you're sitting there asking, why in the world would God want to use me and his mission? Well, Paul tells the Corinthians in his first letter in chapter one, he says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You wanna know why God wants to use you? Because when he uses a sinner like you, he gets the most glory. And that's what it's all about. Has been from the beginning. God's glory. He's invited you and commanded you to take part in this mission. Will you join him? Paul's going to give us one more thing. The end of, or in the end of this passage, passage in verse 21. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He gives us one final reminder that salvation was done for our sake. So that we might enjoy the presence of a holy God forever and ever. And he did so that we, so that we can stand before our king and say I claim Jesus. 
I'm righteous and holy. I'm a saint because of his blood. (laughs) What a wonderful truth. How are we to respond to such a passage other than to worship our king and to proclaim his goodness? That's the challenge today. That's my charge to you today. That every single morning of this week, you would wake up and think of the blood-stained cross and what Jesus has done for you in reconciling you back to himself. And that love would drive you to share Jesus with other people. So that one day, when you see Jesus face to face, you've got people beside you that you brought with you. Church family, I want to be a, a person who makes heaven crowded. I want my life to be an example of what God has called me to do. And it's my prayer that this church would do that. That High Point, North Carolina would be on fire for Jesus Christ because of the ministry of reconciliation that occurs because of this building, because of this people. Would you stand with me? Every head bowed and every eye closed. Truly, Jesus' love has informed the mission. Jesus' love created the mission. And Jesus' love sustains the mission. And reconciliation is truly the great exchange. If you're here today and you have never experienced that great exchange, let me plead with you. Come forward, repent of your sins, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Experience the great love of Jesus Christ. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. As I close, I want to read this hymn that's entitled The Great Exchange. So with your eyes closed, I want you to just listen to these words and hear the story in this song. Once upon a time, upon a hill far away, an unfair proposition before a righteous man was made. Could have changed his situation, but instead he chose to obey at the great exchange. An eternity he traveled to be there at that place, the chosen destination to show mankind God's grace. His longing to redeem us could only be explained at the great exchange. At the great exchange, even then he knew me and he bore such pain. He did it all for love, an undeserving servant who will never be the same since the great exchange. I walked that same hillside as I knelt down to pray. He showed me all the wrong I'd done and the price he paid that day. And then I arose forgiven. His loss became my gain at the great exchange. At the great exchange, even then he knew me and he bore such pain. And he did it all for love, an undeserving servant who will never be the same 
since the great exchange. Everything that mankind lost, Jesus has reclaimed. The pathway to eternity by his death arranged, and all of this he offers if you'll meet him today at the great exchange. That's the invitation today. Meet him at the cross and experience the great exchange. Father in heaven, words do not even begin to scratch the surface of explaining your love. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, impress upon the hearts in this room the love of Jesus Christ. Oh Jesus, I pray that we would never get over the cross and the blood that was shed upon that tree. And Jesus, we worship you because it was all from God and we have done nothing. Change lives and hearts today. Jesus, in your name, amen.